I'm Effie Parks. Welcome to Once Upon a Jane, the podcast. This is a place I created for us to connect and share the stories of our not-so-typical lives. Raising kids who are born with rare genetic syndromes and other types of disabilities can feel pretty isolating. What I know for sure is that when we can hear the triumphs and challenges from others who get it, we can find a lot more laughter, a lot more hope, and feel a lot less alone. I believe there are some magical healing powers that can happen for all of us through sharing our stories, and I'll take all the help I can get. Once Upon a Gene is proud to be part of Bloodstream Media. Living in a family affected by rare and chronic illness can be isolating, and sometimes the best medicine is connecting to the voices of people who share your experience. This is why Bloodstream Media produces podcasts, blogs, and other forms of content for patients, families, and clinicians impacted by rare and chronic diseases. Visit bloodstreammedia.com to learn more. Hello, rare friends. So grateful to have you here today. Thanks for taking the time to hang out. I know summertime, especially the end of summertime, was a whirlwind for so many of us. It felt like there was a collective rare disease frazzledness going on. So I asked one of our favorite people back to the show to explain a few things about the three kinds of fatigues we face and to just generally soothe us all with her loveliness. She's a therapist with over 20 years experience, specifically tailored to those with disabilities and caregivers. Yes, she exists. And one of my favorite things she always says is that she wants some competition in her industry. So if you're a counselor or thinking about tweaking your specialty, I dare you to think about it. We need so many more mental health professionals like her who know our language and our unique lifestyle. You can also find her on the One in Order Disorder channel on the show Taking Care, where she touches on different topics and gives you exercises to help reset. You can download the Disorder channel on Roku or Amazon Fire. So let's get into it. Please enjoy my conversation with Rose Reef. Hi, Rose. Welcome back to the show. I'm so excited you're here. Thank you so much for having me back. It's such a treat to talk to you. Yes. I was just telling you offline that I feel like, yeah, maybe it's been over a year since I've spoken to you. I feel like you're always in my heart because you're on the Disorder <laughs> Channel and I get to see your beautiful face. And every time I do, I think of Kate Winslet. Has anybody ever told you that? Oh, no. What a compliment. My gosh. <laughs> you totally look like her in... <laughs> In your photo on the Disorder channel. Oh my gosh, thank you. I know, we're in such good company being on the channel. Oh my gosh, aren't Bo and Daniel just like the most amazing dudes you've ever met? They're so incredible. And they're they're so generous with me and my inability to get new episodes to them with any kind of regularity. Oh <laughs> uh, Yeah, they're dealing with a lot of parents like us, so they're used to yep. it. Great guys. They're definitely used to it. Awesome. Well, I messaged you a while back when I was hearing a lot of things from the people that I'm surrounded by in my network and my listeners. And I messaged you and I was like, Rose, we got to talk about the three fatigues. <laughs> and I don't even know if I made up the fact that there were three fatigues or if there actually are. But I remember knowing about compassion fatigue decision fatigue. And then I was assuming it's like caregiver fatigue. But is that the wrong third one? So I, you know, when I talk about this with my my clients in my counseling office, when I, you know, write about it, I tend to think of that third one as sort of a mix between just actual physical fatigue, which has an element of just caregiver burnout, right? Because it's getting up in the middle of the night because the tube feeding didn't go through right and the machine is beeping. 
It's, you know, we spent the night in the ER because my child had a seizure or I thought I could rest my eyes at this one point in the day, but that didn't happen because somebody needed something, right? So it's just kind of the unpredictability factor causes this like mix of just physical fatigue, but that is tied usually to the caregiving tasks. Okay, let's start there then because (laughs) I don't know, but I've decided that August is like a continuous full moon. And I feel like every caregiver I know is like on the rails right now. And I don't know why, but it's like a collective thing that's happening right now. I would definitely echo that. This month, for some reason, has been rough for people. So hopefully as we move into fall and the seasons start to change, that will change too. Yeah, it's been intense. And, you know, something one of my friends said yesterday that, I don't know, keeps ringing in my head was like, I'm doing all the things. I'm doing all the things Rose says. I meditate. I work out. I do all this. I do all that. I practice my small things and my self-care and I feel like nothing's working right now. What would you say about that? Like when we have these things that we're implementing and we're practicing our duties to like remain level, as level as we can, but we feel like we're still just drowning. What aha moments are do we really need to see when we're feeling like that? Mm. I think that can be a great opportunity to get an extra set of eyes. I don't want to say on the problem because your life's not a problem, but <laughs> get an extra set of eyes on your fatigue, right? Ask ask someone who is completely devoted to you, whether that's, you know, a best friend or your own parent, a, a therapist, you know, a friend from church, whoever, right? Just say to them, what do you see me doing that maybe I could let go to somebody else. Because usually it's not the things that you're doing for yourself that are the problem. It's all the things that you're doing to maintain everybody else, right? So getting really honest about, are there things I'm doing for my child that my child could be doing for themselves? Are there things I'm doing to make my spouse more comfortable that, you know, I, I need to hand the reins over to them or just, you know, obligations that I've maintained that just aren't really serving our family anymore. Just take a really hard look at what can I let go of, I think is one component of that. And sometimes it's hard to see, right, when you're in the day to day, which is why I say to look for that accountability from somebody else who you trust to say, well, maybe you could try a week without doing you know, whatever it is and see how that feels. I think the other thing though is, you know, we're humans and we're tricky because we like things to be consistent and stable. We like our routines, but we also get bored real easily, right? So maybe yoga just isn't doing it for you anymore. Maybe you've started to associate yoga with having to wake up early and, you know, with feeling tired and slouchy and maybe the person whose class you watch online, their voice is getting annoying to you, right? It could be any number of things. Maybe it's just time to shake it up a little. So the why is the same, right? Why are you doing something for yourself? Well, because I'm important and I'm valuable and I need, you know, interests that are my own. But what those interests are may change over time. And that's totally normal, totally fine. Great, actually. You know, I have some clients who've gotten really into like the master class and that kind of thing. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but it's, you know, or like the class pass at the gyms, you know, when gyms were a part of our our lives, you know, things like that. So that they're always doing something, but what it is may change to keep it fresh for them. I don't know why something as simple as getting feedback from somebody else on maybe what you're stretching yourself too thin on is not something that popped into my head. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> because you're living it. And that, that's why, because you're stuck in the middle of it. And we get in that place where we're in like crisis mode. But the problem is we're not meant to exist day to day in crisis mode. But when you're, you know, when your child has these exceptional needs, when you have a whole life outside of your child, it's real easy to get stuck there. So sometimes you just need somebody who's an independent observer to say, well, have you thought about this? Oof, yeah, that's a really good idea. And get the, f- the honest feedback, right? And how do you approach that and then get the feedback and have self-compassion and maybe not feel guilt and maybe not feel not attacked, but, you know, a little less than when you are getting that type of feedback? That's a great question. I love to encourage people to think of their lives as a really compelling story in which they are the hero. If we think of all of the heroes and all of the movies and stories that we love, whether it's Luke Skywalker or Julia Roberts in My Best Friend's Wedding, these characters always have a guide right? There's always someone in their ear whispering to them, well, have you thought about this? Why don't you try this? And just acknowledge that every hero needs that guide figure to point things out to them and to tell them some truths along the way. And so, you know, saying it makes sense that I got to this point, it makes sense that I got so burned out that I was so tired because of all these things going on. And it's great that I have these people in my life who will speak with me honestly and suggest new things for me to try. And yeah, it's going to be uncomfortable to grow in in new ways and try different things. But hey, if I hate their suggestions, I can go back to doing what I was doing, right? It's literally just a suggestion. Oh my gosh. And who hasn't wanted to like be in a (laughs) rom-com? I love that analogy. That's so good. That's a really brilliant way to think about it as that person just being the encouraging ear and a guide. No, I like that. That's really cool. It's hard. I feel like a lot of people carry a lot of guilt and a lot of people have so much stress that they're dealing with on a daily basis and they're trying to do all the things and maybe still keep a job and keep their relationship nurtured and, you know, all the appointments, all of the the worry. And there's a point that I think so many caregivers get to where they're just constantly stuck in that light mode, you know, and it's difficult to kind of regroup. And I remember something you said, oh, you can't find time to take out anything for yourself or to go to that yoga class or go get therapy or go take yourself, you know, on a walk, but you make 20 appointments a week for your kid. Right, right. I say this to my clients all the time. I'm like, if you took your child for any type of evaluation, whether it's, you know, PT, OT, speech, you know, psychology, whatever. At the end of that evaluation is their recommendations, right? And like, here here are the things that you need to pursue for your child's benefit in this area of their life, right? And I tell my clients, inevitably, they left something out because all the research in the world tells us and all of the clinical experiences that therapists like myself who work with parents, what we know is that parents' mental health matters, It is a huge factor in how well your child is going to do in any of those areas, right? Academically as well. And so if you're not working with people that bring that up and that constantly remind you, hey, how are you doing? Let's check in on you because you as the parent are a huge factor in how your child's going to do. They're missing something. They're missing something really critical. And so it's just, it's so important to surround yourself with friends and professionals who are invested in your child even who see the benefit of you 
having time and energy just to focus on yourself. A fellow rare mom yesterday was saying that she's doing the bare minimum and she's trying to do something new, like drink her water and take her vitamins and sleep more and go on a walk. And she diminished it and said that she, you know, she's doing the bare minimum. And I was like, no, call Rose right now. (laughs) And she's going to tell you like, those are the things. That's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. That's a Yeah. And I was just hoping that maybe you could touch on self-care a little bit more. And I hate that term, but it, it is what it is. But I think parents need that reminder of what it actually is. Yeah, it's not the weekend at the mountain retreat with the world famous yogi that, you know, Instagram wants us to think that it is. Uh, self-care has gotten a bad rap. Self-care is boring. Self-care is sitting down and doing your budget at the start of the month so that, again, that that magic word, accountability, like you have accountability to yourself of, you know, what you are and are not going to spend so that you can make wise decisions for yourself so that you don't feel money stress and have, you know, more month than you have dollars to pay for it. Self-care is brushing our teeth and scheduling our own dentist appointments, right? Like could not be more boring. It's not a super pleasant experience. (laughs) It's, you know, It's not something jazzy and exciting, but it's something that most of us do consistently because we know if I don't do this, I'm going to really feel it and I'm going to regret it. So just, you know, committing to these little acts throughout the day. Sometimes I'll ask my clients, like, especially if they do yoga or something like that, I'll say, would you rather have, you know, that mountain retreat, that one weekend of your life to spend with the most incredible yogi? and, you know, have them teach you everything that they know in that one weekend? Or would you rather have 15 minutes a day every day for the rest of your life to practice yoga and know that the time was sacred and no one would bother you? And everybody says, I'd rather have the 15 minutes a day, right? Because we know the impact of these small cumulative things when we can be consistent about them. It's it's finding the consistency that's the hard part. Yeah. Do you have any suggestions on ways for people to find that 15 minutes. I personally give my children an iPad and I go and turn on my workout mirror and I work out and it's the only way I can get it done. I think there are lots of ways to get it done. I think the trick is actually being okay with when one of those stops working. If you go through a phase where your child's not, I mean, this has yet to happen to my own kids, but like if your child for some reason is not interested in their iPad, (laughs) And you're like, oh, no, that's not going to work anymore. What am I going to do? Well, maybe for a few weeks, I try getting up earlier and working out. I, I, I know one mom who gets to the carpool line early and then literally sets on a workout video and does a quick round of high intensity training, you know, in the carpool line, <laughs> like next yes. standing next to her car. And she's like, <laughs> it, it does, you know, people think I'm a wackadoodle, but everybody at the PTA knows me. I'm the carpool workout mom. <laughs> and nobody's going to bother me. <laughs> you know, It's the time I can do it. So I take it. Oh my gosh, that's hilarious. I'd be friends with her for oh, sure. Yeah, she, she rules. <laughs> it is interesting how you can find these little pockets, right? That maybe you were wasting or maybe you were taking too much time to do something that you thought was important and completely ignoring yourself. And the wear and tear on ignoring yourself is... I mean, we all know, right? Like it causes anxiety and depression and affects all areas of your life if it gets too out of hand. Absolutely. One of the most valuable things we've all gotten over the last few years, I think, is those screen time reports that you get once a week on your phone. If you look at it and say, wow, if I had just spent 15 minutes a day less, you know, whether it's reading the news or scrolling on TikTok or whatever your thing is, what could I have done for myself? 
with those 15 minutes a day. And what I have really missed them in the context of, you know, most of us are spending four to eight hours a day on our phones. That's insane. Yeah, it really is. <laughs> I love TikTok before bed, though. There's nothing I can do but TikTok for the last five minutes before I sleep. <laughs> Don't take it away. No, but that's the thing. It's like being open to what's working for me today to find those 15 minutes may not be the same as what it is next week. And that's okay. People get so hung up on, I found a routine that works. And if I never get back to that routine, I failed. Instead of just saying that routine worked great for a month. I'm so grateful to have had that month. It's not working any now anymore for whatever reason. Time to find something new. No, that's a really good point and giving yourself grace in that. And like you mentioned a moment ago, like, hey, maybe I don't like that yoga voice or that yoga teacher's voice anymore and it's driving me crazy. It's okay to move on. You're not quitting yoga. You're not giving up on something. You're just you're just shifting. Exactly. Also, it's cool to discover new things, right? And I think parents like us don't necessarily have a choice a lot of the time in doing those things. And then we're like, oh, Newfound interest. Are you thinking of something when you're, when you're kind of like backed up, you know, when well, so many parents have to quit their jobs and so many parents have to cut down hours and, you know, change careers for insurance reasons. And they're doing things that they weren't expecting to be doing or that they didn't get their degree in. And a lot of them try something new out of no other choice. Yeah, no, that's very true. I know a parent who was really not comfortable doing tube feedings at first with with their own child, but had had medical training, but was just a little squicked out by by doing it at home. But ultimately, because of their child's needs, wound up leaving their job, but then starting a company helping other parents get acclimated to tube feeding, basically like a doula for tube feeding. It was the coolest thing. That's awesome. Yeah. I wish they were around when I started. Yeah. There was like no YouTube videos on the food pumps. And I was like, I just need I just one need question someone, answered. Yeah, to tell me it's okay <laughs> if everything spews everywhere on the walls and that happens to everyone at some point. Yes, it does. Multiple times mm -hmm. forever. Yep. Yep. <laughs> okay, let's break down what compassion fatigue is and what decision fatigue is and how we're all facing that or moving through it and how to identify it and why it's important or not important. Sure. Is there one you want to go to next or let's go to compassion fatigue okay. just because I know I've learned a little bit about it. Sure. So compassion fatigue is really interesting to talk about when we're talking about parents of kids with special needs because it, it's not really technically recognized to exist for those parents yet, but any professional in this sphere I think knows that it's something that parents raising kids with unique needs definitely face. So compassion fatigue was really first identified and studied in the 1980s in people like therapists, like EMS workers, doctors, nurses, uh, clergy, you know, basically people who are in heavy lifting caregiving <laughs> type roles, right? Because for a long time, people thought, okay, if you're in those jobs, you burn out right? You, you get tired of, of doing what you're doing and you wind up leaving that field. And what they found is that, you know, burnout is kind of the, the experience of just sort of being tired of doing the same thing over and over again and the kind of monotony factor. But compassion fatigue is something very different. It's actually what we in psychology would call like a secondary traumatization, which is basically spending so much time with people who have gone through traumatic events that you start to kind of inherit their trauma and you start to feel very helpless and hopeless to help people and you, you know, kind of experience uh, the same trauma response that, you know, whether it's your clients or your patients or, you know, your clergy, whoever that they would experience. And so, you know, whereas like burnout, 
the solution is usually, oh, just take a break or change up your tasks at work a little bit. And suddenly it's new and fresh again and, and you're all good. Compassion fatigue is a much more slow build. It has much more physical ramifications, like in terms of people's overall physical health, you know, their, their weight and their heart rate and their blood pressure, all of these factors can really suffer when they're experiencing compassion fatigue, it's having a real physical drain on the body. And they're experiencing trauma responses, which are things like dissociating and kind of just going numb and losing your ability to care, which is, of course, why you went into your field in the first place. And so it's, it's really dangerous physically for the person and also for the people they're caring for, you know, who, who may not have their, I don't want to say their full attention, but, you know, the best version of that caregiver. So it's something that's just now starting to be studied in parents raising disabled kids. And I, I have no doubt that within a couple of years, we'll have some articles saying, yep, parents experience compassion fatigue when their kids are put in in-school suspension on the very first day of school and when their kids are, you know, rejected by other kids on the playground or, you know, told that the doctor can't help them anymore because, you know, they don't think that their genetic syndrome that they experience is really real, you know, that all of those things are real traumas. And so the parents who are trying to support their children through them wind up feeling that secondary traumatization. Oof. Yeah. <laughs> So basically, having empathy can almost make you not have empathy. Correct. Like having too much empathy can make it kind of just disappear. Right. Yeah. As and, and it's important to remember, I tell this to parents all the time who are experiencing, that is your brain being adaptive, right? That is your brain trying to keep you safe and saying, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like if we go down this road, if we start caring too much, like it hurts our body and that puts us at risk. We can't do that. So we're just going to shut down. That's bananas. It, I mean, it is, it's, you know, I had one parent say, well, you know, now that I kind of understand it, I appreciate what I'm going through a little bit more. And, you know, seeing it through that adaptive lens is really helpful. This is where I get to sound like a broken record because the antidote to it is just as much of a slow build of the self-care activities, right? And the ability to say, I am stepping out of this role intentionally. I am, you know, not going to be vigilant around my child's needs for even if it's just an hour a day, right? To know that I have this time to myself to not need to be concerned that they're with someone I trust and I can do things just for my, to meet my own needs. That really is the kind of the cure. You taught me that. I don't know if you know that, but the not being vigilant part, the, you know, so many parents will tell each other, just have, have your spouse watch the kids, have grandma watch them, go in your bedroom, read a book. And that is something that I did for a little bit. And then when you explained it in the matter of no, you can still hear it. You still have the energy surrounding you. Even if you can get in your car and drive across the street for that hour that someone's going to take care of your kid, that's what you have to do. You can't stay there. You have to completely separate yourself from the environment. I'm so glad to know that that resonated with you. Oh, my God. I tell everybody that, especially when I see the advice pop up on the threads from people about going in your bedroom. I'm like, no, get your car keys. <laughs> like, Go outside. <laughs> it makes a huge, huge difference. Or send them to the ice cream parlor. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or get rid of them. Totally. Yep. Oh, my <laughs> goodness. <laughs> it makes a huge difference. And like you said, the, the cost of caregiving, right, and how it shows up 
physically, like you were talking about, and, you know, the numbing of it all, slow build, and then like, slow build getting out. Like, I don't even know how a therapist treats someone with multiple kinds of trauma. Mm. If you're dealing with real trauma, secondary trauma, and God knows how many other traumas there are, like, I don't even understand how you work through that. I tend to real I really do double down on that adaptive framework that look all of all of these experiences that you have, you know, avoidance of certain places or even like nightmares, flashbacks, things like that that are so unpleasant, understanding the biological role that they play and how they are your again like your brain trying to keep you safe, trying to keep you aware of things that might hurt you again in the future. And when you can take that and say, okay, I understand what this is. This is not comfortable to experience, but it does make sense that I'm experiencing it. And now I, you know, with that insight, now I get to choose what I'm going to do, you know, in reaction to that versus just kind of feeling like this is only happening to me. Nobody else in the world has these experiences. Just kind of knowing and informing yourself as to how common these feelings are and that there are things that are helpful. You know, various trauma treatments for for parents who themselves have experienced traumatic events, but also through for this, you know, vicarious secondary trauma that we're talking about. You know, it, even it's funny, like the, the vigilance thing you mentioned a moment ago, I had a parent who was real unconvinced. She was like, oh no, like if I, you know, I have a, an office, if I go in my office and close the door, like I'm not aware of them. And I said, all right, here's what we're going to do. I want you to wear your Fitbit and for one week, spend the time in your office and for one week, spend the time away from your child and your spouse, whether it's they leave the house or you leave the house, I don't care who's where, but just away, not in the same house. And then come back and let's look at your heart rate and your body temperature and and some of these other biomarkers. And let's see if I can just look at the data and tell which days you were where. And it was completely evident, right? In the output that that her body was putting out when she had been with her, her child in the same space, even you know, in a different room of the house versus when she hadn't. And for her seeing like, oh, this is really having an impact on my body. And like, I may think that it's okay, but it's clear to somebody who's not me just from the numbers that like, there's a big difference. That was really like an eye opener for her. Oh my gosh. I was going to say, Rose, you have to like collect this data and write a paper (laughs) on it because that's fascinating. And a hundred percent, I believe it. I've lived that. Yep. Totally. Yep. Yep. And I, I think, you know, parents just get in this place where they just tell themselves, I'm fine. It's fine. Everything's fine. You know, just make it to that next marker, whether it's dinner or bedtime or drop off at school, right? Like if I could just get to there, then I'll be okay. And then I can relax. And when you're used to living that way for so long, you just, it just doesn't even register how much it's having an impact on you. Yeah. The marathon, not a sprint thing is a constant thing that you have to pay attention to. And it's hard. It's hard to not get stuck in those moment to moment things that you have to do and the paperwork you have to fill out and the meetings you have to schedule and the quiet time that you'll finally get. Insert every single thing that one does in the day to take care of their kids. And then you have to do it all over again. Right. Rather than maybe, I don't know, what do you do? Do you think of a big goal? Do you, how do you quiet your mindset? What do you do, Rose? I have kind of a unique perspective on this. I can't remember if we talked about this last time that I was on. So for folks who who don't know me and, and kind of my background, before I became a therapist who, who was really focused on working with parents raising disabled kids, I was like a case manager and I ran group homes and independent living settings. And for a lot of the clients I had, I had at times like 30 different clients 
a lot of them had no family. So like I took them to all the medical appointments. I, you know, scheduled everything, managed, you know, managed their finances. Like, you know, yes, there were staff going in to do the day-to-day stuff, but I had the oversight role. So sometimes for parents when they're like, oh, I'm just stuck in this daily grind and I cannot escape it. I encourage them, like, I want you to think about this as if it weren't your child, but what if it was your job? And if it was your job, what skills do you have that you could bring to the table to like either automate things or systematize things? Or who do you know who could help with that? You know, what could you do if you had not just your child, but 25 other kids just like them that you had to be responsible for? I know that you would find easier ways to do things and like to structure, you know, whether it's when you schedule appointments or what I learned as a case manager, you want the 8 a.m. or the 1 p.m. You want the first appointment of the day or the one right after lunch. And like, if you can't give me one of those appointment times, I will wait until the next day when you can, because inevitably doctors get backed up and then that backs up my whole day. Or even this is so silly, but I live in North Carolina where in the fall it's hurricane season. So I got all of my clients on their dental recall appointments so that like, we had a break for hurricane season because I was like, I don't want anybody to have to get rescheduled because <laughs> there's a hurricane warning. And then I have to deal with trying to reschedule a dentist appointment. Like, I just don't want to deal with that. So everybody's going to go in February and everybody's going to go in August. <laughs> and that's just what we're going to do. As silly as it sounds, like finding little things like that that you can do that cut down on the unexpected BS, right? <laughs> you know, or I, I've known parents who've done some really clever things with record keeping so that like if they get a PDF, it can, you know, they can automatically like input all of their child's information so they don't have to refill out those forms. You know, parents who've gotten set up with their own like, you know, $3 a month fax number so that stuff can get faxed to them because it's easier for doctor's offices to do that. So they're not having to constantly call and like, can you email me that? Can you email me that? Right. Because it's a lot easier for a doctor's office to send a fax than an email. So just finding little ways to like break up the logjam over time will cut down on some of that kind of fatigue. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. Have you been tapping my phone, Rose? Because (laughs) I have been dealing with the fax machine and the doctor's office Mm -hmm. and the PDFs Mm -hmm. like over time recently. Yeah, it's intense. And that's really smart. I like those little ideas of managing the future stress that you know is probably going to happen and trying to put things in place to minimize it. Because you do it for everything else. Right. And and that's where that mindset of, you know, if I wasn't a parent, I don't want to say just a parent, but like if this wasn't, you know, my kid, but if this was my client and I was being paid to do this, what brilliant ideas would I bring to the table? People are so clever and wise in the little hacks they come up with. Just finding the ones that work for you and your family. That's what it's all about. And if you have other kids who are, you know, tech savvy, putting them to work and their friends to work, coming up with systems to help you out, like use all the resources you have. Yeah. Just make a big Google Doc. Mm -hmm. Send it out to everyone. Sign up. Sign up for the bake sale. Sign up, genius. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Oh, gosh. Well, that kind of takes me into decision fatigue. Uh. I think I have an understanding of it, but I haven't been able to focus because I've had so much to do, administrative stuff to do over the last month that I've just like, um, I'm I'm going to do that tomorrow. I'm going to do that tomorrow. And then I'll get a roadblock and not be able to finish one when I try. And I'll be like, I'm just going to do it tomorrow. And I've just like lost all my zhuzh. Yeah, that's exactly what happens. You know, there's, there's some very famous research studies that kind of uncovered this concept that we call decision fatigue. But basically, I could just summarize real quickly. 
the most well-known of these, they looked at parole judges and how likely they were to grant people parole or not. And they sort of looked at, can we predict that? Can we predict that based on, you know, how long the person has been in the system or the nature of their crimes or their age, gender, race, all these different things. And they found that none of that was predictive of whether or not the judges would grant parole, but that what was predictive was the time of day that they were seen. So people seen very early in the morning or right after the judges had had their lunch were like, 85, I think, to 90% likely to be granted parole. And then as the day dragged on and as they got closer and closer to, you know, either the hour right before lunch or the hour right before the end of the day, it was down in like the 20 to 30% range. (laughs) So what a weird thing to decide to measure, first of all. Oh, psychologists have all the time. (laughs) (laughs) We study everything. But really fascinating stuff because it's not at all what you would expect, right? It has so much more to do with the decision maker and their well-being than the actual decision at hand. And so that's that's the key piece to take away that, you know, whether I whether or not I make good decisions really has very little to do with the decision that I am making and more to do with how fresh I feel and how many other decisions I've already had to make. You know, finding little ways to cut down on how many decisions you have to make in a day, especially if you know that big decisions are coming up. I will definitely encourage people to like pre-make decisions. Easy example, like if you're going to your child's OT appointment after school and you're looking at your calendar and you know that next week you're going to have to cancel the OT appointment for some reason, well, they're going to ask you, do you want to just cancel or do you want to reschedule, right? Do you want to just skip a week or do you want to try to reschedule, find another time the week? Go ahead and make the decision about what you're going to say to that first thing in the day. Go ahead and think about what would be better for me, because otherwise it's going to be four o'clock in the afternoon and your child's going to be, you know, hungry because they didn't get a snack and they've just gone through OT and you've got to go home and make dinner and like all the things are swirling in your mind. You probably won't make the actual wisest decision that's in your best interest. So sort of deciding ahead of yourself can be really helpful. Obviously, taking time and like just having a snack (laughs) can be a reset. Per snack. Making decisions ahead of time is so brilliant. And I kind of want another example of that because I think people just went, what? <laughs> I should do that. <laughs> yeah, it's um, I mean, kind of the classic one. And, and if people have ever watched me on Taking Care on the Disorder channel, they've probably noticed I really only wear two colors. I, I wear navy and green with like white as a neutral because a couple years ago I was in grad school and I had two kids under two and I was like, ooh, decision fatigue is is here to take me away and I want to prevent it. So I got rid of like most of my clothes and I said, this is the palette that I'm going to wear. It has simplified my life in so many ways because when I need to go buy shoes, I know what color they need to be. When I you know, want to buy a scarf, I know what it needs to go with. Like everything kind of coordinates and I really don't have to think about what am I going to wear today because all of my clothes are going to go with each other. Obviously, I'm not the person that invented that or the only person that does that. I mean, look at Barack Obama and Steve Jobs and like lots of people have done that, but it's helpful. You know, it, it takes the stress out of it. Or I have clients who will like have a meal plan that's not for a specific week, but on weeks coming up where they know they're just going to have a, like the first week of school, perfect example, they'll say, I'm going to pull out the meal plan because it has a grocery shopping list and like, I don't have to think about it. And I know that it's all easy meals and half of them go in the crock pot. So like, it really reduces my stress just to know that it's already taken care of for me. 
Yeah, that's really smart. I mean, cutting down on the amount of decisions you have to make in a day should be part of our self-care routine. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. And figuring out which ones need to go. Yeah. Also, maybe something of a slow build, though, in the beginning. Yeah. As with, you know, a lot of these suggestions, it, it takes some time before you start to see the momentum of it. But if you can look back, you know, at the end of every day and say, what's one decision that I eliminated for myself today? That's great, right? That's a great place to be because then at the end of the week, you've let go of seven decisions and it just keeps going from there. No, I really like that idea. And making those lists too and planning ahead, it's it's really smart because there's a lot. There's a lot to do. And like like I said, with what happened with me, I just like kind of gave up, like, you know, and I, and I still have it in the back of my mind and I know that it's there and it's so dumb that I'm letting it bother me still. So many of us do that. We know we have to get to something, but we take care of the other things at hand instead. You know, there is that novelty factor, right? Again, like just understanding how our brains operate. They like to be a little bit scared. They like to feel like we're in a crunch time. And so sometimes if if something doesn't feel challenging or exciting or new or like there's time pressure on it, our brains will just tell us that it doesn't really matter. So finding ways to work with that instead of against that. So like setting up artificial deadlines for yourself or, you know, adding a challenge, you know, kind of gamifying the day to day as it were, you know, how fast can I fold this load of laundry, that kind of thing, you know, can really help to avoid us putting off the things that are dull, but that do need to get done. Ooh, what do you mean exactly by artificial challenges? The laundry thing? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like setting aside like... For 15 minutes, I'm going to sign papers. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Anytime you can chunk tasks like that together, you can generally get it done so much faster. So if that's an option, for sure. I have two baskets of laundry to fold. I bet I can fold the one that's all towels faster. Let me see how much faster. What a silly thing that doesn't matter at all. (laughs) But but then you get it done. Totally. No, I hear you. That's awesome. Okay, well, caregivers, we got a lot of work to do. Rose has so many good ideas. Rose, tell everybody just like a few simple steps to like take them off onto their the beginning of their week, things to remember, mindsets to try to be into. Mm. I tend to go through like seasons with this, right? Of like little analogies that I'll have. So my my one that I'm I'm on real heavy right now is a lot of us get stuck in thinking that things are like a light switch, right? That it's either all on or all off, right? We've either succeeded at the task or we've failed at it. You know, there's there's no gray area, there's no ambiguity. It's just on or off, yes or no, binary, that's it. But I find it can be such a more mentally healthy approach in a lot of areas of life to say, how can I make this more like a dial? right? How can I make this something that can be tuned and adjusted and understand that there's a right level that's probably somewhere between all the way on or all the way off? What would it take to move incrementally instead of from no to yes, from all the way no to nine out of 10 no, and move closer and closer to where I'm trying to get, but in a way that feels more doable, more sustainable, more like something that I can maintain? Because we, we all know people, you know, oh, this is it. I'm losing all the weight. I'm eating the intense diet. I'm doing all the exercise. And then a month later, yeah, that was silly that I thought I could do all those things and I'm off the bandwagon, right? But instead, if you make like small, manageable, approachable changes, you you are close. You're actually infinitely closer to where you want to be than you were when you were doing nothing. So looking for how can I make this more of a dial versus a light switch? 
Hmm. Infinitely closer. I love that. I love the dial analogy. Rose's grab bag. I pay money for your for, your, for Rose's fortune for cookies. You should start sending them out. Or as my clients call them, is this another one of your dumb analogies? <laughs> no way. Yes, it is. Buckle up. <laughs> I'm obsessed with them. It makes it easy to remember when you're in a high stress season that you call it or when you're having one of those days where you're like just on the fritz when you can remember it in a story format like the way you put it it's so much easier than to be like okay I know for self-care I'm supposed to do this but when you put it like that it's so much easier to go to when you're in that fight or flight mode right that I mean that's it is for me so I I hope that it is for you know my my clients and other folks who listen to me so I'm grateful to hear you say that 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 it's working for you yeah well Rose you're stuck with us like I think <laughs> I told you a year ago so I appreciate all that you do and you're just such a treasure for our community and thanks for joining me again on the podcast thank you so much for having me but yeah thanks for talking to us I'll link all your stuff in our show notes. Fantastic. Thank you. Yeah, you're so welcome. I hope you've been enjoying this podcast. If you like what you hear, please share this show with your people. And please make sure to rate and review it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also head over to Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter to connect with me and stay updated on the show. If you're interested in sharing your story or if you have anything you would like to contribute, please submit it to my website at effieparks.com. Thank you so much for listening to the show and for supporting me along the way. I appreciate y'all so much. I don't know what kind of day you're having, but if you need a little pick-me-up, Ford's got you.